But here's the whole sermon. Okay, if, if someone asks you, what did the, the preacher talk about on Sunday? This is all you have to remember. Everyone needs a priest. The priest we need is Jesus. That's it. That's the whole thing. Everyone needs a priest. The priest we need is Jesus. There's an objection, though, that immediately comes with, well, what is a priest and why do you say I need one? So a few weeks ago, remember when we were talking about priesthood, we said this is a hard concept for us who are modern Western Christians to get into our mind because we don't live with priests. But if you look at human history or even the, the globe abroad, all the world has been religious. And their religious activity involved priests. Priests were a mediator. Someone who mediated a relationship between a higher, a superior, and an inferior. God who's holy and perfect and people who are not. And so a priest was the one that represented the people to God. The analogy we thought of as, as modern, or, as modern uh, Westerners is this idea of maybe a lawyer, that you find that you're guilty of something, and you're not going to go defend yourself in a court of law. And so what do you acquire? You acquire representation, counsel, someone to mediate this whole thing for you, someone who's an expert in the law that will plead your case. That will actually get you, hopefully, free. That will actually let you not go to jail because he can get you off. And so you would hire someone who would mediate, who would be a counsel, an intermediary. That's kind of this function of priesthood. Now, some in the room would say, who says I'm guilty, man? Like, who are you to tell me that I'm guilty? I think that's the way the world would say this. Is you say I need a priest, a priest intermediates for me, represents me if I'm guilty before God. But who says I'm guilty? I don't follow your Jesus. I don't know your Bible. I don't claim to know the Ten Commandments. And so God surely isn't going to hold that standard that I know nothing about to me, is he? Who says I'm guilty? Well... You do. You do. Francis Schaeffer, who was an American author, teacher, theologian 50 years ago, had a great analogy of this. And I think it's actually more poignant today. It's an analogy of a tape recorder. He said, imagine that as every baby is born, an innocuous tape recorder is kind of tied around their neck. A tape recorder, if you're young, you don't know what a tape recorder is. It's actually a tape and you, it does exactly what you would think. You hit a button, and then it records your voice, and it could probably do 60 minutes. That's about it. Uh, reporters would use it. Um, I think it's even more poignant today, because instead of trying to imagine a world that could record you, just imagine your world with, like, an Alexa, or a Siri, or an Apple Watch, or a phone that records everything you say all the time, every day. Man, what a world that would be. Anyway, that's your world. That's my world. So he just imagines this world with a tape recorder around every child. And it only turns on during this person's life every time they make a moral judgment of someone else. Man, she's rude. You can't, I don't, you can't drive like that. Don't lie. Be honest. Don't gossip. Man, he loses his temper all the time. And it only turns on and records every time you make a moral judgment of someone else. So that when you stand before God and say, God, I don't know this book. 
I don't follow Jesus. I haven't heard of Christ. I don't do the Ten Commandments. You can't tell me that I'm guilty. He said, oh, of course, of course. No, no, I, I won't use this. No, we'll just play back the tape. Alexa, play for me all of their moral judgments of their life. And what you hear as the standard of your judgment is your own voice. She's rude. You can't drive like that. Don't lie. Don't be a gossip. And thousands more come. And God says, I won't even use my own standard of morality. I'll be happy to use yours. And when this is revealed, what's the first thing you think? I'd really like a mediator right now. I'd love to get some counsel. I really need a priest to stand between me and this awesome, holy, perfect God. See, everybody needs a priest. The priest we need is Jesus. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. This is Jesus as the author wants to link him up with a former priest named Melchizedek. And we should ask ourselves, why does he choose Melchizedek? There's a lot of priests in the Old Testament. Remember that the priestly line comes from Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had another son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. They were the tribes of Israel. From one of his sons named Levi became the Levitical tribe. And all the priests descended from Levi. And there's a lot of them. So why does the author connect to Melchizedek? He's not even in the line of Abraham or from the tribe of Levi. Well, because he's reading his Old Testament scriptures. Remember, Jesus came, lived, died, was resurrected according to the scriptures. Jesus fulfills the scriptures. And so when the author is reading his scriptures, he gets to Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, this is considered a messianic psalm. This is a psalm of David that speaks of the promised Messiah that's coming. God's promised rescuer. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says where he's repeated here, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The reason the author goes and connects Jesus to Melchizedek is because if Jesus is the promised Messiah... And in Psalm 110, David says, the promised Messiah will come from the line of Melchizedek. Well, then Jesus must be connected to Melchizedek somehow. And we don't know much about Melchizedek. And so let's take a few minutes just to look at this kind of obscure passage in Genesis that talks about Melchizedek. And then we'll come back to Hebrews 7. So if you're in Hebrews 7, put your finger here and scroll all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis is the first book. And go to chapter 14. Chapter 14, there's just a few verses. Melchizedek is mentioned three times in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and in our passage, Hebrews 7. And there's this interesting story where there are these kings, these five kings that are at war with one another. And Abraham's living in a region that's not at war, but Abraham's nephew, Lot, is living in a city called Sodom. And the king of Sodom's at war with his other kings, and, and, and Lot and his wife and his family and his possessions come, become a casualty of war. And they're captive, captive, captured by these kings and taken off, their family, possessions, and all. And when Abraham hears about this, he gets a small army together to go rescue his family. 
And he actually rescues Lot and all their possessions and brings them back. He's successful in this. And it's them coming back in which Abraham meets this mysterious Melchizedek. We'll pick it up in chapter 14, verse 17. Let's see here. Oh, sorry, my bad. I was in Exodus and it didn't have Melchizedek. <laughs> Chapter 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of the Caldelamor, Caldelamor, I don't know. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the story. And then the author of Hebrews, looking at the lens through Psalm 110, says, Jesus comes from the order of this Melchizedek that Abraham met returning from war, who was blessed by him, and he tithed a tenth of all of his spoils to him. Now, what is it that the author wants his hearers to connect with Melchizedek to understand the priestly role of Jesus. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. And we're just going to walk through it. Does that sound okay? All right. Don't fall from the trail. Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So the first thing that I want you to, to see here is that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He blesses Abraham. And he's going to make the point later that it's a superior that blesses an inferior. That Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and blesses him. That Jesus can be connected in a priestly role, not to go and, and get you, catch you in the act. He's not out to get you. He is a priestly office of blessing for you. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And to Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. We'll get back to this tithe in a minute. He is first by translation of his name. And then he wants to connect Jesus to Melchizedek based on Melchizedek's name. King of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. And we know a lot about names. Names reveal things about how people viewed God, what people did for God, what was their function of God. And this Melchizedek has two parts of his name that the author wants to connect to Jesus. That Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. King of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem. Salem is connected to the Hebrew word shalom, of peace. He's the king of peace. And so Jesus is going to be in the order of the priestly king of righteousness and the king of peace. Shalom, Salem, is also the shorthand for the, the, the title of Jerusalem. So some, some people look at this and say, the king of Salem, 
is probably the geographical location of where Jerusalem will be. And so Melchizedek is the, is the kingly priest of righteousness and peace of Jerusalem. Now are you starting to connect some of the dots with Jesus? Jesus is the promised rescuer from the people of God of Jerusalem, who will be the king of righteousness and peace. Something else the author wants you to notice is about Melchizedek's order. So look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now that's odd. Is this to say that Melchizedek is divine? That Melchizedek is a demigod of sorts? Who has no beginning or end? Is he eternal like God himself? I know I wouldn't take it that way. And here's why. The book of Genesis, Genesis means beginnings. The book of Genesis is all about genealogies. If you read the book of Genesis, it's all about the people of God, of who begat who, who begat who. So who came from Adam and Eve? And then who came, you know, from Noah? And then Abraham, and then Jacob, and then, you know, just keeps going down. Where, where does Noah come, or where does Noah fall in? Where does Joseph come in? And how they're connected to the family of God. But Melchizedek just shows up out of nowhere. Now, in the book of Genesis, all of the important characters that God wants you to pay attention to, it seems like, has an important genealogy of who their father and mother was and who their offspring were. But Melchizedek, there's no mention of mother and father, and there's no mention of offspring. Does that mean that he has no mother and father, and that he has no children after him? I don't think so. But I think it's to represent Jesus' priestlyhood forever. That's what I think is the point. Right here in this word, resembling. Resembling is different than fulfilling. Resembling is likeness. It is not exact identity. And so I think what the author of Hebrews is wanting to convey is through a name of king of righteousness, king of peace. Look at Melchizedek. That his priestlyhood is different than Aaron's. Aaron's is all about lineage. It's all about the family line. But Melchizedek, There's no beginning or end mentioned to us in Genesis, which resembles Jesus, who is the word of God, the logos, the one in the beginning and the end, who will have no end. And the point he wants to make is this. He's going to draw it out. All the priests of Aaron died, and more priests have to come. And in fact, we're not even sure where the priesthood is today. But the priesthood of Jesus is forever. It has no beginning, and it has no end. Let's see if that's the kind of direction where he he starts going. Verse 4, see how great this man was whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth to his spoils. This whole book is about the exaltation of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. And the author never has to diminish someone else to prop Jesus up. He just has to point to, look how great they are, and then look how much greater Jesus is. Look how great Abraham is, And he pays tribute to this Melchizedek. If you think Abraham is great as the father of Israel, even Abraham recognized Melchizedek as superior. And those descendants of Levi, that's the priestly order, receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people. That that is, from their brothers. Though these are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from the from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had 
the promises. Even Abraham, who receives tithes from all the brothers, and Levi, he paid tithes to this Melchizedek. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by moral men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What's the author trying to connect here? Is the whole priestly line of Israel that has a high view in the community, that's exalted amongst their brothers, they receive tithes from their family, even that whole community, Levi, in a sense, was in the DNA of Abraham the day he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so there's a greater priesthood that Jesus is connected to, this priesthood that comes from Melchizedek. And that's the point he's going to make. So verse 11, this is the text that Nate and Lindsay read. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after Aaron? That's the whole point. We've all been looking forward to this promised Messiah. Psalm 110 says he's going to come from a different priesthood. We've been longing for it. The only reason you long for something like that is because you know of the insufficiency of the present order. If this present order with priests who are offering animal sacrifices in the temple was sufficient to bring salvation, or as he puts it here, make perfect, if that laws could have saved you, then there'd be no reason to look forward to a better day when a new priest would arise from the order of Melchizedek. And this Jesus has done exactly that. That's what the author's trying to get into. The one we've been longing for, the one who's able to make perfect, to really save us, is Jesus the Christ. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The author knows that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. We look at these promises at Christmas all the time. That there's going to be a descendant from the line of David. From the tribe of Judah to come and sit on the throne of God. But Moses never said anything about him being a priest. How can you say Jesus is a priest? He's not from the tribe of Levi. I know because he's connected to this Melchizedek. No beginning and no end. The one who's actually able to save us. And when there's a change in priesthood, we're going to see next week, there's a change in the law or the covenant. What does Jesus do on his death? Establishes a new covenant with us established in his blood and we'll unpack that next week verse 15 this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent meaning the reason you're a priest in the levitical law is because your dad was a priest that's it you have no moral qualifications or character qualifications this is the family business my dad's a priest i'm a priest my son's going to be a priest But that is not so for Jesus. 
but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is a priest because of his indestructible character. Look at the very end of chapter 7, verse 26. This is the indestructible character of Jesus. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness or in their sin as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The reason, the priest, the reason Jesus is the priest that we need is because Jesus is unlike the priests of Aaron. Who were their own, they had to atone for their own sins. They were sinful. They could never take away our sins because they had to first deal with their sins. He's not like those priests because they offer sins every single day, day in and day out. Jesus did it once, completely, forever. And unlike the the Levitical priest with Aaron who has to keep replacing priests because priests keep dying and dead priests don't help, Jesus lives as a priest forever. He's able to forgive our sins because he was sinless. That's what the author's pointing out. You have a totally different, greater than priest in Jesus. Unlike any priest of the world. So look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's better. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They served between 25 and 50. And then they would be replaced. But he holds the priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. That's the connection he wants to make. Is Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek. And his priesthood has no beginning and no end. And he offered himself once, fully and completely, for all who would draw near to God through him. So whenever you stand before God and think, how could I be forgiven? Even based on my own standard of morality. Jesus stands as your priest and says, I would love to intercede for you. And then we come to verse 25, which could be some, the, the, one of the most precious verses in the whole Bible. Verse 25, consequentially, means there's consequence to what Jesus is doing. What is the fallout of Jesus being this great high priest? Verse 25, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the consequence of Jesus' priesthood for those who believe in Jesus, who have been baptized into the life of Jesus, is that he is able to save to the uttermost. It means he's able to save completely, fully, forever see jesus isn't the kickstarter campaign of salvation like you know what i'll get the thing going for you and then we'll see how it goes after a while and then depending on how you live after you professed christ maybe after you got baptized then we'll determine if you can be saved no he has forgiven all of your sins past present and future fully save you to the uttermost 
Which means there's no way to stand before God and say, have someone come to you and say, you know what, I got one more, okay? I'd like to show you some emails. I'd like to show you some text messages. These things weren't brought up to the court beforehand, but I'd like to present this as evidence. Jesus' priest says, yeah, I've got it all. Not only completely in the sense of all of your sin, but for all of time. So it's not like sometime in the future, Jesus is not going to be a priest standing for you, interceding for you, as though somehow, almost into eternity, Jesus says, you know, you're exhausting. I'm done. He doesn't do that. He saves to the uttermost. He saves. What the law was unable to do in making you perfect, he makes you perfect fully, forever. That's the priesthood of Jesus. And then it says he's able to save those who draw near to God. It means the only way to draw near to God is through Jesus. If you have any desire in your heart to draw near to your creator, any desire to be in relationship with the Father of heaven, the only way is through this Jesus. That's it. There is no other way. He's able to save uttermost for those who draw near to God through him since because he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to be your advocate. Now, I think this is really important for us today as we are living Christians. So much in our mind of what Jesus does for us is rooted in the past or in the future. So when someone says, what does Jesus do? Well, I know in the past he has forgiven my sins. When he died, he forgave my sins. And I know in the future he's coming to bring the kingdom of God to restore all things. But we don't think much about what is Jesus doing presently for us. Is Jesus a present help to you? Or is everything about Jesus past and future? Well, here Hebrews says that Jesus lives to make intercession. Remember, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He was resurrected. This is closely tied to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who's going to condemn us? Christ who died for us also lives at the right hand of the Father. And indeed, Paul says, is making intercession for us daily. Think about that. What does Jesus live for? We know what he died for. We know what he's coming for. What does Jesus live for? He lives to advocate for you, for the fullness of salvation that he purchased for you. What great confidence this gives me as a Christian to wake up every single day and know that the fullness of my sin is forgiven. The fullness of my salvation is attained in Jesus, and I am secure in him. And so when the enemy comes and tries to guilt me and shame me and try to bring up things that I've said and I've done, I can just simply say, no, that is forgiven. And I'm in Christ and I am free and I am working to be conformed into the image of Christ. What confidence this gives to the Christian that he stands at the right hand of the Father and advocates for us. Now, a poor picture would be that God the Father looks at you like, oh man. And Jesus is like, it's okay, Dad. Remember what I did. I went down to the cross and I died for him. Just remember what I did. That's not what's going on. 
Remember, God in his love sent his son. In Christ's love, he came to us. In their love, they gave us his spirit to dwell inside of us. The Godhead is for you. So what does it mean that he intercedes for you? It's not that he intercedes in the sense of like, be merciful just one more time. I know Thomas did it again, but it's, it's going to be okay. Remember how much I went down there and, and, and died for him. No, what does he intercede? His intercessory work is work of justice. Remember what John tells us, 1 John 1, 9? For if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, they say, Father, will you forgive me in the name of Jesus? Will you forgive me because of the work of Jesus? If we confess our sins, he's faithful to do what? To forgive us of our sins, right? He's faithful. He's just to do that. We don't appeal to his mercy. We appeal to his justice. It would be unjust of God the Father to penalize you for your sins that he's also penalized Jesus for. You get that? He's already poured the penalty out on Jesus. And so he, it would be unjust of the Father to penalize me for what Jesus has already died for. So the intercessory work is whenever the accuser shows up and says, oh, but there's some more details on Thomas. He hasn't even lived into his 50s yet. Just wait. Just wait. Jesus says, oh, all of that to the uttermost has been forgiven. I am his advocate forever. I am his counsel his representative forever. My justice was complete on Thomas's behalf forever. You see, that's the whole message. Every one of us needs a priest because we say we're guilty. And who can stand before a holy and perfect God without a representative? A perfect, exalted, flawless priest. And there's only one. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your love, you sent us your son, who's not just an example to follow, but he's the priest. He's the priest who offered himself on our behalf to forgive us of our sins and save us completely completely so Lord may we just humbly live lives of praise and gratitude may you continue to form us into his likeness that we would love one another as he loves us to forgive one another as he has forgiven us. To be patient with one another as he's patient with us. To endure with one another as he endures with us. I thank you, Father, that we have this great hope that we are safe, that we will be safe, that we are forever, forever saved. So we praise you, Father, in the name of our priest, Jesus the Christ. Amen.